Well, I invite your reverent attention to the Word of God as found in Genesis, in chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Genesis, chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. And Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one shall give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If I asked you to describe the world in which we live, uh, I wonder how you would answer that. You might describe the world in terms of its uh, physical makeup, a world of incredible beauty, uh, mountains, valleys, canyons, rivers, oceans, uh, great trees, delicate flowers, all sorts of plant life and creatures filling the skies, the land, and the sea. Or you might describe the world uh, in the activities of people. World of individuals growing up and marrying, going off to school, having children, and then going in uh, to the world of homemaking or business and arts and sciences and uh, even uh, building uh, great cities, New York, Paris, London. Or you might describe the world in spiritual terms, a world of sin and misery, false religions opposed to each other and all opposed to Christianity, a world of religious persecution, a world of spiritual darkness and immorality that seem to be prevailing over true light and piety. Well, in a sense, if you took all of those descriptions of the world, in which we live, you have the world of Genesis chapter 4 and 5. Genesis 4 and 5, and I invite you to have your Bibles open to those chapters so you can scan uh, as we work through these chapters. Genesis 4 and 5, as you know, trace out two lines of people descending from Adam and his wife Eve. Most of chapter 4 traces out the line of Adam through Cain, while chapter 5 traces out the line of Adam through Seth. And what I hope to do with you this morning is to explore that world and those two lines, uh, which focus down upon uh, two men, and they bear the same name, uh, but they walk in vastly different ways. And one way will shine forth as the better way. Well, before we look at the differences between those two lines, um, we need to consider what they had in common. And this is what they had in common. Adam was the common ancestor of both lines. He fathered both lines after his fall into sin and the subsequent ouster from the garden. That's all you know, recorded in Genesis 3. What does that mean? What's the significance of that? Well, it means that every person in each line 
the line of Cain and the line of Seth, lived in a fallen world, cursed by God to bring forth thorns and thistles and toil and sweat and pain and death. It also means, they had in common, that every person in each line was born of a fallen father. And so each person bore the effects of the fall, which corrupted every human faculty by sin. Okay. We could put that in the terms of uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Everyone in those lines were born dead in trespasses and sins in which they walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom they all once lived in the passions of their flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is what both lines, the line of Adam through Cain and the line of Adam through Seth, had in common. Okay, so now let's think about the differences together. And we'll begin with the line of Adam through Cain. Well, the defining characteristic of Cain will become the defining characteristic of his line. So we need to give some thought to the, the way of Cain. Uh, we're introduced to him, you know, in the opening verse of chapter 4. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Well, Cain's birth was a time of joy. It was a happy time. Eve thought that Cain was the promised offspring to come from her to crush the serpent's head. But her hope was ended when Cain slew his brother Abel. You know the story, but let's rehearse it. It says, in the course of time, both men brought an offering to the Lord. And I tell you, this is one of those times for me where you just wish that the Bible gave more details. What was happening in the course of time? Well, let me uh, surmise what might have been happening. Because we jump from the day of the birth of Cain and of Abel to this day that they bring an offering. In the course of time spans that whole time frame the days of their growing up with their parents. Adam, Adam's toiling by the sweat of his brow, helped by his wife Eve. Presumably both boys heard the story of their parents' fall into sin, but also of God's provision of garments made from a sacrificial animal to clothe them. Presumably also they were instructed in how to bring an acceptable offering to the Lord. And I surmise that they watched their parents do that. But then the day came when they would bring their own offerings. Every child 
of believing parents must do that at some point, step out from their parents' faith and stand before the Lord. And the issue is, will they stand in faith and belief or in unbelief? Cain, the elder brother, goes first with his offering, and then Abel brought his offering. You know, the Lord accepted Abel and his offering, but the Lord rejected Cain and his offering. And we wonder why. There's no mention about the quality of Cain's offering or his heart before the Lord. But something was lacking in both. Because the Lord accepted neither Cain nor his offering. But I think there's a clue in what is said about Abel's offering that is not said about Cain's offering. It's just said that Cain brought some fruits of the ground. There's no indication that these were the first fruits or the best of the fruit. While Abel, it is said, brought the best. He brought the firstborn and the best parts of the firstborn. We are helped when we go to the New Testament and we look through the lens of the New Testament on what it has to say about the Old Testament. This is in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And so we see Abel, the man of faith, bringing an offering from the best of what he had. He is a true worshiper, bringing an offering of worship from the heart for the God he worshipped, but not Cain. His heart was not in his offering. He did not come in faith. He merely brought a token offering that matched a token faith. And when the Lord had no regard for Cain's offering, Cain became very angry. The Lord spoke to Cain and gave him an opportunity to bring another offering. If you do well, said the Lord to Cain, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. Well, Cain doesn't take the opportunity to bring another offering or heed the warning. Um, he will ultimately walk away from the presence of the Lord and he will take his anger with him. Sin mastered Cain. And Cain will take out his anger against Abel. <clears throat> it is cold, calculated murder. Let us go out into the field, Cain said to his brother. And the two went out together, and there in the field, Cain slew the man of faith. And here we see two things about Cain's sin. <clears throat> First, the progression of sin. It begins with the failure of the heart, and the failure of the heart before the Lord, and then it becomes a failure towards his brother. 
<clears throat> I like the way um, the Old Testament scholar, Dr. Bruce Walkie, puts it. He says, Cain first fails at the altar, and then he fails uh, in the field. Because he failed, he says, in his theology, he will fail in his ethics. And the second thing we see, <clears throat> we see the enmity of the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman in its earliest form. This is what the Bible calls the way of Cain. If you want to turn to the letter of Jude in the New Testament, we'll see where Jude warns the church about the way of Cain. So I invite you to turn to Jude. This is from Jude verse 11. Again, it's the warning to the church to beware of people who long ago were destined for condemnation, ungodly people, he says, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> Pardon me. He says, such people walk in the way of Cain. Okay, Ungodly, pervert grace, and turn to sensuality and deny the Lord. That's the way of Cain. The way of Cain flows from the heart of Cain. And through the lens again of the New Testament, we see Cain's heart full of hatred set against those who walk in righteousness. This is from 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 13. John says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, he says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And he says, why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Okay. What does it mean to be of the evil one? Jesus tells us, what it is when he looks into the hearts of those who wanted to kill him. This is from John chapter 8, verse 44. You, he says, are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer and a father of lies. And that's the way of Cain. It is of the evil one, doing the desires of the evil one, uh, rejecting uh, the Lord and grace and then turning to a life of sensuality and self-pleasure. Well, quickly for his murder, Cain was banished from the presence of the Lord, condemned to wander and be a fugitive. Uh, Genesis 4, verse 13, Cain complained to the Lord. Uh, you know, it's interesting... You, Cain speaks to the Lord about the judgment. He doesn't speak to him about, okay, well, tell me more about this opportunity to bring another offering. Tell me how to come before you and be accepted. He doesn't do that. But he complains about the punishment. It's greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me away today from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. 
chapter 4, verse 16, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod. <laughs> the name Nod means wandering. Okay, He's settling down in the land of wandering. In this land, the man condemned to wander settled. He builds a city and he names the city after his son Enoch. And the name of Enoch means dedicated. And here we have the beginning of the city of man that will become famous for its achievements, the achievements of man, uh, because the line of Cain will become great in trade and commerce, arts and science. Um, But later on, they'll become famous for wars and ruthless people and crumbling societies all amid the hope that, well, we're we're getting better. (laughs) Mankind is getting better, but it's not. The founder of the city was the first man who would not worship the Lord in spirit and truth, but would rather be away from the presence of the Lord because he was of the evil one and preferred the evil's ways rather than the way of the Lord. So it's not surprising then that the last person mentioned in the line of Cain is Lamech. And what is he known for? He took the way of Cain to new depths. He's the first recorded polygamist. He was violent and arrogant and proud, and he wanted the world to know it and remember it. And so he celebrated his way in song. Genesis 4, verses 23 to 24, Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's revenge is seventy-sevenfold. And that is the last we hear of uh, Cain's line, though the city of man will continue on with greater accomplishments, but with the same heart issues. But the world's not without hope because Eve will bore another child, and his name is Seth. And so begins a new line of Adam. And we're brought back by Moses, the author of Genesis, to God again in this new beginning as Eve saw that God's favor was in this new son, Seth. And so she names him that. Seth means appointed. She sees him to be the appointed son to carry forth the covenant family in the line uh, from whom the serpent crusher will arise. Seth fathers a child and names him Enosh, which means weakness. And out of a sense of weakness and need, it said that people now began to call upon the name of the Lord. Call upon the name of the Lord. We hear this phrase echoed down through scriptures. We see it uh, in Abram after he has made the journey from the Ur of the Chaldees to the promised land. He arrives there, but the land is full of Canaanites. Genesis 12, verse 8, says Abram moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel. He pitched his tent there. 
And with Bethel on the west and I on the east, it says, He built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. We see it in the Psalms. Uh, you can turn to Psalm 116. Um, as you turn there, I'll, I'll begin reading. Psalm 116, verse 1. The psalmist says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish, and then I called on the name of the Lord. And what was the prayer? O oh Lord, I pray, deliver me from all of this. It goes on to say, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. He preserves the simple. When I was brought low, He saved me. God saves those who call upon His name. We see that in Acts chapter 2, verse 21 which says, and it shall come to pass, it shall come to pass. It is a future certainty that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is reaffirmed in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a future certainty. Okay? And so what shall we say to all of this? But the name of the Lord is mighty to save those who call upon Him. And so there's your first difference between the ungodly line of Cain and the godly line of Seth, which ends at Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 5 continues to chronicle the line of Seth. But it's after we're taken back to the retelling of the creation of Adam and Eve in verses 1 to 3 of Genesis 5, a recounting of the creation of man that is absent from the, uh, the line of Seth. This is the book of the generations of Adam, begins chapter 5. When God created man, he made him in the image of, and likeness of God. He made him male and female. He created them, he blessed them, and named them man when they were created. And then when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And so we have a retelling of the creation of mankind again that we did not have with the line of Cain. We're told again that when God created Adam, he made him in his likeness, uh, and that we are told again that he, God blessed them. Blessed Adam and Eve, and there begins now a new line of Adam. And Adam fathers a son in his own likeness and image. So we've been taken quickly from a short history of the ungodly line of Cain to begin the story of the godly line. The son Seth bearing the image of his father Adam, who bore the image of God. The new line of Adam through Seth will be characterized by faith, as was Adam's son Abel, whom Seth replaced. As Abel was a man of faith, so was Seth, and so was his line. 
as we have seen in Enosh, as they began to call upon the name of the Lord, and we'll particularly see this in Enoch and Lamech, and ultimately Noah. In this line of Adam, we're introduced to a new concept, walking with God. Enoch walked with God, and then he was not, for God took him. That's Genesis 5, verses 21 to 24. I hope, Lord willing, next Sunday we'll think more about walking with God. But suffice for this morning, I'll borrow again from Bruce Walkie, who says that to walk with God is to enjoy supernatural and intimate fellowship with Him. Supernatural, intimate fellowship with God. And here is another difference between the two lines of Adam. For one of the descendants, um, excuse me, the difference, not one of the descendants of Cain walked with God. Okay? Neither Cain nor his Enoch or his Lamech knew this fellowship with God. And why would they? Because Cain walked away from the presence of the Lord. What they do? He built a city to his own son's glory. And so we have these two Enochs. One from the line of Cain, who lived and died in a city built by men. The other, the line of Seth, who walked with God and was taken into a heavenly city built by the Lord. And what he's doing is he's showing to walk with God is the better way than to walk in the way of Cain. And so now we move to Lamech of the line of Seth. This Lamech is set in contrast to the Lamech of Genesis 4 in the line of Cain. That one was proud and boastful and violent and vengeful. And what we know about these two men really comes from what they said, their own words. The Lamech born into the line of Cain wanted the world to know and never forget that he was king of the hill. He always got his way. You didn't dare cross him for fear of revenge. Hear my voice, my wives. I killed a man for wounding me and a young man for striking me. Uh, make no mistake, <clears throat> that wasn't just a matter of pride for him. <clears throat> it was a threat. Cross me, I will kill you. He exalted his own strength and held himself in higher regard than his forefather Cain. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, guess what? Mine is seventy-sevenfold. He projected no sense of weakness, and I imagine he despised weakness in others and perhaps in himself or any show of weakness. There was no grace in the man, no forgiveness. He would not ask for quarter and he would give no quarter in battle. And that's your man Lamech from the line of Cain. But look at the speech of the other Lamech from the line of Seth, and think about what he said when his son was born. Genesis 5, verse 29, our primary text this morning. His father, uh, he, Lamech, called his son's name Noah. The name Noah means rest. Okay? He called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one 
this one shall bring us rest from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Well, those few words spoken over his son tell us much about the heart of this better Lamech. It tells us much about the line of Adam's descendants through Seth. It tells us first that this man was weary. The fallen world had done its work on him. It wore him out. You know that. The fallen world will wear you out. It wore out the wisest of men. Solomon. That's what it does. It's designed to do that. The fallen world. I was speaking with a young man who was just kind of undone about the world. Nothing seems to make sense. How does a young man find a career path? How does he pay for rising costs of things? The world seems out of control. And I just thought to myself, yeah, welcome to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's the world in which we live. It will wear you out. Yet in the midst of his weariness, he hoped for rest from the awful curse that the Lord had put upon the earth that we read in Genesis 3. And where will that rest come from? Well, that Lama knew the answer to the question because he had not forgotten what had been passed down from father to son, from mother to son, from generation to generation what had been passed down through the family line of Seth was the Lord's promise of a serpent crusher to come from the offspring of the woman. The people of this godly line held on to that promise, and each generation taught it to the next. For how else would this Lamech know about the ancient curse of the ground and the pain and the toil that was given a thousand years before he lived. And how would he know about the promise? Were it not for parents teaching children and those children teaching their children and passing down the gospel. This Lamech believed the ancient promise and was waiting in hope for its fulfillment. He makes me think of the psalmist's word from uh, Psalm 119, uh, particularly verses 81 to 83. Psalm 119, verses 81 to 83 say this, My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word, says to the Lord, My eyes long for your promise, and I ask, when will you comfort me? Or we might say, when will I have relief from all of this? He says, for I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. 
I wonder, have you ever felt like that? Think of the picture of a wineskin hanging over the fire and the smoke drying it out. Have you ever felt like that? Worn out and hung out to dry by life in the fallen world. I've felt that way at times. I trust you have. And what comforts and renews our strength at such time? Where do we find renewal of strength when we're worn out? We find it where Lamech found it. It is in the promise of God. Again, from the writer of Psalm 119, this is from verse 50. He says, this is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. Though Lamech's son Noah was not the ultimate giver of that rest which he longed for and desired, his greater son will be that person. Jesus, who comes through the line of Noah. He has brought rest for us. He who said, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. So what is the overarching lesson of Genesis 4 and 5? I think it's this. Though the world sank deep into sin after the fall of Adam and sin spread through all mankind, the Lord did not let His promise fail. The promise of the offspring of the woman who would crush the serpent's head and reverse the the effects of the fall. Our God is the God of the unfailing word. And to preserve his word and promise, he preserved a faithful line of men and women in the midst of a fallen world. These men and women called on the name of the Lord and they found salvation in him through what they believed. And their faith was reckoned as righteousness, we know. And this righteous, godly line walked in fellowship with God in this fallen world, still longing for the promised rest and relief that comes only from the Lord. Yes, they all died. Those are the repeated words with every person named in the line of Adam through Seth in Genesis 5. Three words. And he died. But they lived, and they died in faith. They were the early saints of God who called on the name of the Lord. And what does it say about the death of a saint in the sight of the Lord? It is precious. That's the takeaway. We live in a fallen world, but we have the promise still. We have the beginning of the fulfillment in Jesus, the one who said, come to me and I'll give you rest. We still call upon the name of the Lord. 
And there's still salvation in His name because it is mighty to save. And we live in faith. Unless the Lord comes, we will die in faith. And that death is precious in the eyes of the Lord. Well, I hope that each of us this morning are numbered among the saints of God. If not, there's the offer. Come to him who said, come to me. I will give you the rest you are seeking. Pray you'll do that. Find rest for your souls in Christ and in the promise that he is the fulfillment of the offspring of the woman, the ancient promise. So, well, those old saints fellowshiped with God, and we have an opportunity to do that this morning in the fellowship of the Lord's table. Um, it is a time of special fellowship um, and a, a privilege uh, to come to him to be strengthened and nourished in a weary world. Uh, and we need that. Um, we need this fellowship and strengthening and nourishment. Um, so he invites you. As he invited you to come to him, he invites you to his table. It's not this church's table. It's his. He is the Lord of the table. Um, you're invited to partake of it because there is grace Grace for the weary and the sinner, okay? Um, so, contemplate that. Um, we uh, have scripture warrant for the uh, Lord's Supper. Numerous places in the scriptures, but I'll go to Jesus' words uh, himself. Mark chapter uh, 14, as they were eating, he took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them. And he said, take, take, take it, he offers to them. It's my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So he gives you the invitation. The table is open to you. If you are united to Christ in faith, you confess him as Lord and Savior, been baptized, if you're not under church discipline, and you're not living in known sin, for which you're unrepentant. We all live in known sin, don't we? But we repent of those sins. As for the bread, uh, the Belgic Confession of Faith says, for the support of the spiritual and heavenly life, which believers have, he has sent them a living bread which came down from heaven, namely Jesus, who nourishes and sustains the spiritual life of the believers, when he is eaten by them, that is spiritually appropriated and received by faith. And so, as I break the bread and you are served, uh, engage the Lord 
confess, repent of your sins. Um, but also um, celebrate grace, God's grace, which has come to you. And then when we're all served, because we are one in Christ, we'll uh, eat the bread together. Again, it is a visual signal that we are one and united in him. Well, Father, I thank you for the bread, the bread of heaven, even Jesus Christ. Worship him with all thankfulness for what he has done for us. The giving of his body upon the cross, the one righteous for the many sinners. Thank you for remembering us in our weariness. And we thank him for making provision in the sacrament of the Lord's table that we may come in faith, coming as sinners, but yet redeemed, forgiven. We are debtors of grace and mercy. Thank you. May it indeed strengthen us in the inner person, in the soul, that we may be full when we feed upon him in faith. And we give thanks for this bread again in the name of the eternal bread himself, Jesus Christ. Amen. Regarding the cup, again from the Belgic Confession of Faith, Christ testifies to us that as certainly as we take and hold the sacrament in our hand and eat and drink with our mouths, by which our physical life is sustained, so certainly do we receive by faith as the hand and mouth of our soul, the body and the blood of Christ, our only Savior, in our souls for our spiritual life. So again, as the service is passed, take time to re- reflect on God's grace to you. And uh, a reminder about the wine in the center of the service, uh, grape juice in the periphery of the service. Maybe a time again of fellowship with the Lord in your private contemplations and prayers. Uh, Father, again, we thank you for the cup. And we thank him who provides the cup in his own shed blood. Again, we are profoundly thankful for your loving kindness, covenant loyalty, grace, mercy, forgiveness. Renew our strength that we might be as servants bearing testimony not only in this place, but when we go forth of the grace of God and the name of the Lord that is mighty to save. And so bless us in this cup and we give thanks in the name of him who gave it to us, Jesus Christ. Amen.